0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the 33rd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID 19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, the subject is COVID 19 and immigration. My guests are Carly Goodman and Camille Mackler. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter at USOfDisaster. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the COVID Calls podcast. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please do feel free to suggest yourself. Tomorrow on COVID Calls, I'll be speaking with Don Kettle. Don Kettle is the Sid Richardson Professor at the LBJ School in the University of Texas of Austin and he specializes in public management and public policy. He's the expert in federalism and disasters and he's the author of the new book, The Divided States of America. So please join me for that tomorrow. As of today, there are 3,173,036 cases of COVID-19 confirmed globally according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 3,094,829 cases yesterday. 1,030,487 of those cases are in the United States, up from 1,004,908 yesterday. There are now a total of 60,207 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 57,812 yesterday. I had a wide ranging discussion yesterday with Mike and Scott, and I hope you heard it. If you didn't get a chance to, please do check out the COVID Calls podcast. Mike is the host of The Pulse on WHYY Radio Philadelphia. Towards the end of our discussion, we talked about the importance of local media, especially at this time, a time of disaster, both in the sense of the impact of communities and the the role local media plays in covering disasters at the local level or at the neighborhood level in big cities, but also as a watchdog of public corruption. And with that in mind, I, I wanna ask you to mark your calendars for a special COVID calls May 14th, when I'll talk to two reporters from one of the most important local newspapers in America, the Beaumont Enterprise. This is a newspaper in Beaumont, Texas, in Jefferson County, Texas, and they cover that county and the surrounding counties and the cities of Beaumont and Port Arthur, Texas. On that day, I talked to Caitlin Bain and Jacob Dick, and I cannot say enough about the stories that they and their colleagues are breaking at this time about the challenges to that community. Jefferson County, Texas has the highest concentration of petrochemical plants in America. It's right there with Cancer Alley and the parishes of Cancer Alley in Southern Louisiana. And this small newspaper is the only local paper there that covers the oil business, environmental justice, and the pandemic all at the same time. They have the kind of ambition that my friend, Karen Gadbois, the editor of The Lens in New Orleans does. And I hope you'll check out the Beaumont Enterprise and look at the stories that they've been breaking. If you're inclined, maybe send me some suggestions by email or on Twitter of other local newspapers or media outlets and journalists who you think are really crucial right now. Now one of the most important local stories that's been covered in Beaumont Enterprise, and I think it's being covered around America right now by local as well as major news outlets is the impact of COVID-19 on immigrant communities. And I wanted to learn more about that. So that's why I invited my two guests today. And let me go ahead and introduce them. Carly Goodman. First, Carly is a historian of immigration, a writer and a visiting assistant professor at LaSalle University in Philadelphia, where she teaches courses on global history and migration history. She's also a co-editor at Made by History, the Washington Post, where she edits daily commentary and analysis from the nation's leading historians. She's working on a book about the contemporary immigration restrictionist movement launched by John Tanton. My second guest is Camille Mackler. She's director of immigration legal policy at the New York Immigration Coalition. In her role, she works on crafting policy priorities relating to access to justice and right to counsel for New York's immigrant communities. She currently serves as the chair of the Protecting Immigrant New Yorkers Task Force, the chair of the New York State Bar Association's Committee on Immigration Representation, and she sits on the American Immigration Lawyers Association Committees on Consumer Protection an unauthorized practice of law. Two very busy guests today, and I'm really glad that they can make time for this discussion. Carly and Camille, welcome to COVID Calls.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Honored to be here.
0: So I'd like to remind people that you can get questions in in real time. Please put them in the YouTube live chat or you can tweet them at me. Just tag me at us of disaster so let's go ahead and get started and I would like to um, start the way I've been starting all the calls by finding out how things are where you are so maybe Carly I'll I'll start with you um where are you calling in from and how are things there
1: um uh thanks so much again thanks for inviting me to be part of this I'm really honored to be on this panel especially with Camille doing all of the amazing work that she's doing um I'm just a historian you know it's uh (laughs) It doesn't feel quite as uh, as as important as maybe what what she's doing, but um, but Scott, we know the truth. We know how important history is at a time like this. So, um, I'm calling in from South Philadelphia. Um, this is sort of the first moment all day I haven't been watching Disney films with my three year old while I try to do my work on the sofa. Um, so. Uh, I know that that's sort of small potatoes, but that's that's the context for where I'm, I'm coming from, which is just I've been you know working overtime, um, but my family is is safe, um, and so we're having a lot of uh, gratitude for that and just coping with uh, the upset of our you know the fabric of our lives.
0: What was the pace of shutdown at La Salle? Was it on the same timeline as the other universities in Philadelphia?
1: We um. We got the notice on the morning of Thursday, the 12th. Um, you know we've been joking about the periodization of recent. US history and how you know you could really focus on any given week of the <laughs> COVID pandemic and would find really riches to, to understand. So it was the Thursday before our spring break. We decided um, to sort of suspend in class uh, class courses. Uh, we had spring break and then we resumed. So this is our last week of courses. Um, and uh, it's been incredible to see how well people have coped and the incredible work that that students are are doing and how thoughtful they are in, in the midst of all this. But it's uh, it's really a, a challenging situation.
0: I, you know, that that transition in the middle of a semester strikes me to have been very, very difficult. At Drexel, we were in moving into finals week when we shut down. So we had a little bit of a break, but then we started our spring term online. Um, So we had what seems now to me almost a self-indulgent two weeks to prepare for that transition, but right now we're seeing at midterm the extra amount of of labor and stress for the students and the staff and the faculty. So thank you for sharing that perspective. Camille, let me turn to you. Uh, Where are you and how are things there?
2: I am in Brooklyn, New York. Um, So, you know, just Trying to trying to make it work, but I have a six year old, so we're doing the whole remote schooling thing. <laughs> Not as many Disney movies, but um, you know I've been in New York since two thousand one, and so I've been through through many moments uh, in this city that have, you know, 9-11, Sandy, um, a few others, and I'm always just in awe and inspired by the resiliency of New Yorkers and and the compassion. You don't think we have a lot of it, but we actually do, especially for each other. And so the the 7 p.m. clap on our balcony is sacred in our house. And we've been, we count down to it starting at about 2 p.m. And that just reminds me just what an incredible city I get to be a part of. And, you know, we're just seeing it fight back like always right now.
0: I had a conversation last week with Virginia Heffernan, the columnist for the LA Times, and she was describing something very similar to what you were just saying, Camille. That you know, the density creates all sorts of problems for social distancing, and yet you really see—and I think this is true in Philadelphia too—this enormous attempt to uh, be careful with each other, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, in places which, at least in our popular culture, have reputations as being pretty tough pounds. The pro-social outpouring right now is immense, I think. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I go running in the park very early with a mask, um, but people smile and wave at each other. i <laughs> never, never experienced that before, but uh, yeah.
0: It's... Yeah. The social contract <laughs> is strong in New York and Philadelphia right now, mm-hmm. I think. So let me um, turn, to, uh, Carly, I'm going to turn to you first and actually I want to start, you wrote a really tremendous piece in the Washington Post last week, uh, the title was, uh, the headline was, President Trump's immigration ban has nothing to do with coronavirus. And I think this is the frame for the per- first part of our discussion today. I'm just gonna give a little quote from this from this piece. You said, of, of course, immigration is not a vector for the spread of the coronavirus, which is already circulating within the country. And xenophobia only exacerbates the problem in dangerous ways. The president's rhetoric has already been linked to rising hate crimes and violence against Asian Americans and continuing to cast foreign-born and non-white people as bringers of disease may further fan these flames. A full immigration ban could possibly limit the ability for the United States to recruit needed healthcare and agricultural workers or make it impossible for families to reunite at a time when we especially need the people we love. So can you explain to us the context of this op-ed and why draw the connection for us between the pandemic and president Trump's announcement last week of this immigration ban
1: yes um, uh, thanks for the the compliment again, I wrote it uh, amid Disney plus screenings all day with books strewn around our, our living room but if that's I, your
0: method stick with it because it's a really great piece
1: um, well, I don't think that um, anyone who's been paying attention to immigration uh, found any surprises in my analysis. I don't think it came as as a shock. Um, The night, as I was falling asleep the night before, we had this tweet that we were going to shut down all immigration. The actual announcement of the policy is something um, distinct from an absolute ban, but the idea was out there, right? He put out this idea that we needed to shut down all immigration and make immigration zero. Um, And that just um, flagged something for me, which is that this has been the longtime goal of this restrictionist movement to reduce legal immigration altogether. Um, you know, and thinking about what uh, effect COVID-19 has had on the administration's immigration policies, I, you know, in many ways uh, very little, right? These are the policies that they have already been pursuing quite aggressively. Um, things like the Remain in Mexico policy it's hard to imagine a more dramatic uh, attack on the right to seek asylum. Uh, a few weeks ago, sort of this this new policy to return um, asylum seekers who arrive at the border is something that the administration has, has been trying to do for, for several years. Um, this suspension, um, regardless of what its actual impact turns out to be, um, and I think, um, it will affect people's lives in a, in, you know, in a negative way. It, it will be harmful. Um, they see this opportunity to take an emergency moment and make, and make something of it. This is a goal that has not had a lot of popular support ending legal immigration, ending the immigration of the family members uh, of Americans, ending the, um, the humanitarian refugee resettlement program and asylum. Um, this is the opportunity to do it. Um, and I think this rhetoric as well as these policy choices um, make an already quite dangerous situation for so many people more dangerous.
0: Um, Camille, I know you're tracking what's going on in some, some quite specific uh, spaces of, of this this battle like immigration detention centers or following what's happening with immigration and customs enforcement. So. Are there specific things that that the pandemic is is enabling the administration to do that it could not do before this moment?
2: Um I mean, Yes, I think I think it's more a question of they've been trying to do it all along and now, you know, they it, They're exploiting this crisis basically <laughs> um, To push it forward even more when when everybody else's attention and energy is diverted um, so and I, I couldn't agree with you more, Carly, on, on I've basically everything you just said. I mean, they really are. They have not slowed down the deportation machine, and they've exploited this to, as much as possible. When you, you know, you spoke about the ICE detention facilities. Um, you know, the, the incarceration space as a whole has been a concern in this crisis, where we know that close proximity, uh, is, you know, really feeds this highly, highly contagious virus. And so... We've had the situation in New York and an article just came out just an hour or two ago actually in BuzzFeed that really highlighted this that that was excellent that we had transfers from our facilities in downstate New York to an ice run facility in upstate New York, ostensibly to, to put in more separation, right, to put in more distance between individuals to allow for social distancing. It turned out that the, one of the facilities where the people came from was the first facility to have a, a confirmed case of COVID amongst those detainees. Then that the, the receiving facility in, in Batavia, New York, then became, as of last week, was the highest, had the highest rate of infection. But to mitigate it, they just transferred a whole bunch of people down to Texas who now has the highest rate of infection. I mean, they're just sort of moving people around. Right? Where, I mean, the solution, honestly, would be release them. I mean, you could release them on ankle monitors, right? You could release them in a way that they're still on some sort of supervision, or they're not really free. But I mean, at the end of the day, let's also remember that we're talking about civil detention. That even individuals who are there with a criminal, um, with you know, with with a criminal history, have served their criminal sentences already, um, and that no one, you know, everyone's being deprived of liberty without access to counsel, without access to a speedy trial. Um, And now I risk for their lives and we're just hearing heartbreaking comments from from detained individuals saying, you know I just want to go home like people giving up on their cases giving up on their fights against deportation because they just don't want to die In a US detention facility and then those who have been ordered deported who aren't being able to leave the facilities And they just want to see their families one more time and they're they're genuinely afraid
0: What about the in, in courtrooms themselves and in immigration courts same kind of situation?
2: Yeah. So after a lot of fighting, a lot of fighting, they finally agreed to um, they be the Department of Justice, which, um, for those who aren't aware, the U.S. immigration courts are part of the Department of Justice. The judges are employees of the Department of Justice, um, and the immigrants, the, the government is represented by a lawyer. Immigrants uh, can only have a lawyer if they can afford one, or they can find a nonprofit to take their case. And everybody was asked, was begging them to stop it, to to stop the hearings. I mean, an immigration court hearing on a good day is, I mean, pardon the, the New York analogy, but it's like taking the subway at rush hour, right? Um, it, it's just so crowded, it's so packed and for a long time they were refusing to close down the hearings and they finally postponed the non-detained hearings so they're still going forward with the detained hearings um they're switching things around they've had to close down court after court after court for a day for two days um, because people are testing positive for covid and i can tell you out of the out of all of the friends i mean i'm in new york city right so i know a lot of people who've had it and i'd have to say about 80 percent of them have some affiliation to the immigration legal system and i don't think that that's a coincidence um and actually the the american Immigration Lawyers Association put out a letter. I've never seen this before, put out a joint letter with the Immigration Judges Union and the union that represents the ICE attorneys. So opposing counsels, plus the judges, all put out a letter imploring the Department of Justice to end these hearings, and they really didn't heed the call. Um, And that's the the top of the iceberg in terms of what's been going on wrong at the immigration courts. Um, But, you know, you asked me, your your initial question was, are they exploiting this? And that's one way that they're exploiting this. I mean, a, a woman. Who was arrested at the border with her child detained in this in the south in a facility in Louisiana I had a hearing via video with a judge here in New York two weeks ago. She has no lawyer. Um, she's she's fleeing gang violence. She was given two weeks to submit documents for a hear a final hearing to listen to her asylum claim two weeks later for judges and with a judge who won't even get documents that she may submit um, because there's no staff to to take care of that.
0: So. Just so I understand it correctly, and I just wanna make sure for those who are listening who may not be as familiar, mm-hmm. uh, when you say ICE, you're talking about I'm sorry, yes. A part of the a part of the Department of Homeland Security. It's a federal yes. agency. It's the immigration and customs enforcement mm-hmm. agency. Right. And
2: they act as, now, yes, right? yes. Sorry. Um, no, it's okay. So the ICE yeah. is um ICE acts as both um law enforcement and prosecution. So they're, they're both the prosecutor and the, the, the police for immigration um, in the interior.
0: Okay, and in the courtrooms, so just to be clear, if the administration wanted to curtail, slow down or even suspend ICE activities in this moment as a matter of public safety, they could do that. There's no law compelling them not to do that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely not. I mean, if, if public safety was a priority,
0: Yeah, right. So let's make that assumption. I would sort of articulate. I mean, because they're so they're framing public safety differently, obviously. And the same for the Department of Justice, if they wanted to um, suspend what's going on in the immigration courts or pursue other methods, you were talking about video distancing or other um, distancing kind of protocols that could be used. They could do that, right? There's nothing requiring them to do things in this way at this time.
2: Yeah. I mean, we submitted a number of letters and we actually made motions directly to the courts to implement certain things. And we referenced, for example, the the New York state court, you know, obviously the one I know the best, right? The New York state court system has moved to an entirely virtual court system. Um, Part of the problem is that the U.S. immigration agencies are not very technologically um, advanced. There's never been electronic filing in immigration court before now or anything like that. So they were starting from, you know, a disadvantage in that sense. But as far as I know, every court system in the country, including the federal courts, have moved to a virtual system. And some matters can't be heard. That way you can't have a jury trial, which is not an issue in immigration court. Um, but there are definitely ways to do it. But I mean, the other, pro- the, the other problem, of course, right, is that lawyers, when you can't have a lawyer, it's impossible to meet and prepare with a client um, when, when you're stuck at home yourself, when you may be watching Disney or, or you know, handling, like, all the stresses of your own, own circumstances. You don't have access to files. You don't have access to clients who don't have access to, to the facilities that you would need to prepare a filing, to, to develop a legal argument. I mean, the, the common sense decision would have just been to pause everything the way everything else has been paused. And they haven't done that. And it's created enormous stress and enormous concerns about, you know, the, the, I don't want to say the erosion of due process because we were there before COVID, but I, I don't even know where we start to come back from this, you know, when, when the stay-at-home orders left.
0: Charlie, what about deportations right now? I mean, it seems that, and and you've said, and others have said that we're, in a sense, we're we're deporting and exporting COVID-19 in in this moment.
1: It was one of the things that I had to cut from my piece, but there's this irony, right, that casting people coming in from outside as bringers of, of disease Is is you know so fraught and racialized anyway. It's also at stark odds with the reality, which is that the United States is an exporter of COVID. Um, You know, we've seen stories, especially of people being deported to Guatemala and Haiti. uh, I think Mexico. And I haven't seen as much about El Salvador and Honduras, but maybe that's just because they're not being reported. Um, But these planes uh, full of people who are ill are flying around the country from one detention facility to another, and then um, taken to countries that have very little in the way of, of ventilators and infrastructure to handle the outbreaks that, you know, that are likely to follow. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's crazy.
2: Um, it's pretty fascinating. I'd love actually, sorry, if I can ask a question to your oh, perspective. Ahead. Um Because there's this pattern, right, in immigration of there's a problem in the U.S., we export it abroad, it creates, it it just gets completely magnified, right, and and worsened in these countries that were, you know, without getting to the whole destabilization of, for example, the Central American regions. But nonetheless, it it gets exacerbated in countries that don't have the resources to address it, um, even as much as the U.S. does, and then it then triggers migration back to the U.S., And there's this pattern, right? And I mean, we've seen it in other areas, like gangs and and things like that. But I mean, this just, it feels like the exact same thing. I'd love to hear what you guys think about that. It just seems
1: like it's not a lesson that anyone has wanted to learn or to pay attention to that... um the, the role of the United States in, in creating situations that make staying home impossible. Um, you referenced uh, the problem with, with gangs, which we can link in many ways to uh, the deportations of the 1980s and the 1990s, um, uh, where a, a problem that we, uh, what incubated here in the United States um, is again, so it's it, uh, it, it's exactly the the parallel situation that I was thinking of Um, as I've been watching the news of of these deportations in the last few weeks. Um, But we don't seem to have um, uh, like a political conversation about this that ever takes those important historical facts or context into into account, that that's sort of missing from the way that uh, the public discusses immigration in the United States, like it's something that happens to us to Us, sorry, but uh, that uh, of people coming from the outside in, um, when you know the United States is present in the world, right, and creating uh, a lot of these these destabilizing situations.
0: remind people that you're listening to COVID Calls and today we're talking about immigration and COVID-19 with Carly Goodman and Camille Mackler. I want to come back to, you know, one of the, the findings, and I guess it it seems now almost intuitive, um, but it's a relatively recent area of research and disaster research is to not talk about disasters as a monolith, but actually to talk about disasters as revealing the underlying vulnerabilities in society. And we've talked on COVID Calls about about what that means in terms of race in African-American communities in, in Cancer Alley in Louisiana. And now we have this executive order last night from the president um, demanding that as a matter of um, a national imperative that meatpacking, the, the, the logistics, the, the supply chain of meat um, has to be kept open. And of course, that puts us into a discussion about labor and about immigration. And so I wonder if we can turn to that now, maybe Camille, you first could give us your take on the on this executive order, or more generally, when we talk about um, this disaster and the communities that it hits. Of course, the immigrant community, we, we can say that, but when we go a little bit closer into that, we're really talking about sp- specific workplaces in many cases, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, immigrants don't do the jobs that, you know, you can work from home or, I mean, right. or, or offer those protections. Um, and they can't a- access a lot of the, the social safety benefits. Um, um social safety nets, excuse me, that help in these sort of situations. I mean, in many ways, in in many ways, immigrants do the jobs that allow the rest of us to stay home, right? In New York City, that, that's very obvious. We've seen this sort of correlation between the highest, the 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 epicenter of the epicenter is our immigrant communities, is, is places in in Queens and such, which are very high in immigrant um, families, and it's no it's no surprise, right? Because of all the jobs that they do. But even when you talk about the the food supply and the agri- right? We all know who's picking fruit in our fields. I mean, who's who's milking cows in the dairies who's packing meat in these meat packing plants. It's, it is immigrants by and large. Um, and, and they work in these terrible conditions. They, um, conditions that are unsafe, especially in this instance, again, when, when the recommendation is to be far away from people and to sort of self isolate, right? It's not just standing six feet away from someone. It's not touching the same surfaces. It's not being in the same space. It's not sharing the same equipment or things like that. Um, and and it and to top that all off and like I said immigrants don't benefit where they really can't get a lot of the of the assistance they, they've been left out of the stimulus packages they've been left out of any sort of relief that's out there that's being put out there um, at the state or federal level at least in New York State but then on top of which in February the Trump administ- administration enacted a a new rule that has basically terrified immigrants from seeking healthcare. Um, Because in a lot of times, if you get publicly funded healthcare such as Medicaid, or if you take other benefits such as uh, food assistance or cash assistance or anything like that, then you could be um, ineligible to get a green card down the road and you could in certain circumstances be deported. Um, And they did, Pat, they did say early on in the crisis, well, early on, you know, in mid-March that anyone who sought medical help for COVID related, um, Symptoms would not be held to this rule, but the overarching message was don't take Medicaid, don't seek public help. You're, you know, it's going to put your immigration status, your livelihood here in the U.S. Is in danger. And so that's been, that's been huge, right? That's been a huge problem for us, um, sort of trying to get the communities to, to get the health care that they need so that they stop the community spread. Because at the end of the day, the virus doesn't care who you are, or what your status is, right? They're going to infect, it's going to infect whoever is standing there. And so it's really astounding that this administration, at least where immigration is concerned, has done everything to promote community spread at a time when the rest of us are desperately trying to prevent it.
0: I just, I mean, there's this cruel irony here, and I don't know, Carly, if you want to address this, that these industries, which are now being seen as absolutely essential to the survival of the disaster right now, you know, meat packing, for example, by this executive order, agriculture, um, home health care, as well as all of the different you know, labor that goes into keeping facilities open and running even when most people are not in those facilities. How is it that that, that labor is so invisible in our society? that we can basically, as Camille's describing it, sort of order people to go, order immigrants to go into these environments where their risk of getting COVID and of dying is much higher than the rest of the population.
1: The vulnerability of immigrant workers and the invisibility of their labor are policy choices, right? Mm -hmm. These jobs that immigrants do, this category, is a policy choice. Uh, people, uh, Employers have been incentivized to find more vulnerable workers who are less likely to join unions and to speak out against their, their poor working conditions. We had a tremendous piece um, last summer in Made by History written by an anthropologist named uh, Angela Stusa, um, who did ethno- ethnographic research in the communities in Mississippi, um, where the poultry processing had been um, uh, basically, uh, all of the workers in those plants had been recruited um, as, as immigrants to replace African American workers who had started to to think about organizing in the in the 1990s and so she tells this story very powerfully about how th- the idea that um, immigrants take jobs is really uh, not evident in the historical record when we have Records of employers seeking out and recruiting and, and choosing to employ immigrant workers by the very uh, because of the the fact of their vulnerability because they're they're more um, you know flexible I think is the word that that um, capital likes to use to, to describe this and so not only has this been a policy choice but the threat of deportation and violence that the um, that the uh, enforcement machinery um, has created is part of that policy choice that keeps workers in a space of being uh less able to speak out less able to uh organize for higher wages and better and safer working conditions less able to you know to follow in the footsteps of uh, what upton sinclair was writing about in 1906 in these very same types of workspaces so um I forget what your question was, but no, you, you, I, to, to make it clear that this was not like an accident of history, but in fact a very, um, you know, aggressive policy choice that we've seen across industries, um, and the the costs of that are mostly borne by the people themselves, of course, and their families and their communities. But we can see in a moment of pandemic that we're all very interrelated and that you can't pretend that there's a wall between the inside of these, these meatpacking plants and us. The walls are porous, we rely on each other, we need each other, we need these supply chains, right? We, 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 we wanna make sure we still have healthcare workers and food, um, so immigrants are members of our community. Let's recognize that and um, you know, make them eligible for things like COVID-19 relief, unemployment insurance. It's absurd, right, that you, that people who are members of our communities can't access the things that we all need to live.
0: Well, casting it as policy choices to me, I mean, should feel very empowering for people who may feel quite distant from these battles somehow that somehow it's taking place in a meatpacking plant off in Nebraska or even in, in our own state in Pennsylvania or New Jersey or, or New York, but the policy choices around subsidy, around whether or not it's hard or easy for unions to organize, about occupational safety and health issues, I mean, those those are matters of public discussion and, and debate in the formation of, of policy. So let me let me drill down maybe a little bit more into this, Camille, I mean, maybe first, to you, are there particular industries here that are um, that rely more on immigrant labor and exploit that labor more than others that we see really right now under the the glare of, of the COVID nineteen pandemic?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know when you have, I mean, immigrants are immigrant workers are easily easy, easy to exploit, right? Because they can't, they're not going to be as likely to go file a complaint um, or to sort of assert their rights. Um, which which then drives down the which drives down the the wage floor um for everyone and sort of has a self-perpetuating cycle i mean i think when i in a let's start with an urban area since we're in an urban area um you know i mean uh immigrants are the the ones who clean our buildings who clean our streets who uh drive our cabs who drop off our newspapers in the morning who deliver our food who work on our construction sites um in in many places, immigrants are a disproportionate um, number of home health aides and and individuals who sort of have to do right, they like care for our sick, for our elderly, day in, day out. If you start getting outside of the cities a little bit more, immigrants are in our fields. They pick our food. Like I said, they here in New York, we have a huge dairy industry. They're the they're the ones who milk the cows, who take care of the animals. Um, they work, like you said, in the meatpacking plants. They um, they do they do all the little jobs that keep running, right? So that others can come in and sort of like make the decisions and, and make the, you know, the bigger management decisions. But they they do all the little jobs that keep everything running. And also, I mean, you know, for, they, they do, um, we haven't said this yet, but they're a big part of the, the medical system. Right. I mean, we were waiting for a Supreme Court decision on the fate of the DACA program and they just filed supplemental briefing because 27,000 DACA recipients are, are healthcare workers. And they say that one in four healthcare worker in the United States is foreign born. Um, and it also, it's policy choices that just impact us over and over again, because they're developing a, a vaccine in Oxford, for example. What if one of the doctors that was educated in the United States, but couldn't find a job here because our immigration system wouldn't let them stay, went back and becomes the one, right? I'm not saying that's going to happen. I have no idea, but it would be pretty, I mean, ironic doesn't seem right, but it's, no, possible. An,
0: Im- it's an important context because I think we are obviously we're focused right now on the workers who are most at risk personally, their families and themselves being exposed because they're basically, they have to show up to work or they or they don't work and they can't use the health system for the many reasons you've said. But of course there is an impact here as well for higher skilled workers.
1: Well, you should say higher wage.
0: I, sh- I should, you're right. You know, that's yeah, exactly, <laughs> thank you for that A lot of skill in building a house question. that doesn't collapse. Yeah, no, I know, <laughs> I was just thinking about what it would take to, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, plant and maintain our agricultural system and I'm not qualified. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. Higher wage, but uh, be that as it may. Okay. So I'm going to leave that there for a second. I want to actually, I want to get to a question and then zoom this out a little bit. No. So I have a question here from, um, Mike Fisher, who actually wants to sort of broaden this question a little bit. And he's wondering if you can speak to, um, this issue of the larger organizations or forces, that have been pushing for shutting down immigration. So kind of coming back to where we started, I mean, beyond, he says, beyond the generalized ideological conservative means, there does seem to be a systematic, uh, never let a crisis go to waste um, sort of ethos here. But at the same time, you know, the big moneyed interests, these big industries that rely on immigration, they shouldn't want immigration to be cut off can you can you speak to this conundrum in in American policy that you know on the one hand conservative forces seem to want to close the border and on the other hand it's it's those same moneyed forces that rely on that on that labor
1: um, yeah whoever
0: wants to take that first <laughs> yeah
1: I think well we're going we're going to see one fight about this play out on the right in terms of whatever comes up with the next immigration ban, because currently, um, temporary worker visas are still going to be issued, especially for some of the lower wage uh, jobs. Um, And so and, and I know that that infuriated many of the restrictionist groups that that would truly like to see zero um, immigrants for their own um, sort of ideological and demographic project. Um, you know, there were, there used to be some coalitions of, um, of sort of ethnic groups and business owners who um, who could sort of collaborate and uh, and advocate for policies of more generous immigration. That's sort of what we saw in the 1960s and 1980s, and even in the Immigration Act of 1990, and even in the part of the uh, the 1996 bill, IRA IRA, that stripped out um, the reductions in legal immigration, there was sort of a a coalition of unlikely allies that sort of crushed that. What we've seen in the last 20 years, though, is that a highly militarized border um, has actually trapped people here instead of uh, migrating more seasonally. It's created a sort of permanent population of people, but instead of giving people the legal status that could uh, that could really help them and really help um, their communities, uh, they've been criminalized, right? And so the enforcement mechanisms do serve the employers by creating this vulnerable workforce, by making them vulnerable to this you know overarching threat of deportation of being dragged away from their children um, and so there's some there's some equilibrium here where some amount of restrictionism has actually served certain industries uh, fairly well right um, while others i think uh you know primarily you see tech uh, uh advocating for for immigrant visas for high-wage workers um you know it, it hasn't worked as well for them, right? So there's, they're, they're not monoliths, but I think that's part of the dynamic that has happened since the 1990s with the breakdown of those unlikely allies and coalitions.
2: I also nope. feel like, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, yeah. Um, I mean, I also think that what's happened, frankly, for the last three years is that the American public has become much more aware of the state of our immigration legal system or immigration system than ever before. I think, you know, they're very, The immigration laws are very convoluted, they're very complicated, um, and they're very limited, right? I mean, the question I get most often when I go into a space that's, you know, more, um, um, less immigrant friendly, let's put it that way, is why don't they follow the rules? Why don't they get in line? And then I just got sort of started having the discussion of, well, they're trying, right? And there is no real line. And all these individuals you see coming to the border, they're not breaking their rules. They're exercising their right to ask for asylum. It's our system that has failed them by not providing the proper infrastructure to support it, not to mention support, you know, what's happening outside of our borders so that the root causes can be addressed. But I don't know that it's always as ideologically divided as we seem to think. I think you know, if you take it away from the fringes, um, President Bush um, W in some ways pushed some better, you know, some for businesses at least, right? Some more immigrant-friendly policies. Whereas President Clinton signed IRA, which had mm-hmm. devastating consequences for immigrant communities. And President Reagan before him signed an amnesty, um, and President Obama increased deportation. You know what I mean? So like it's not always as ideological as we think it is and I think a lot of times like when I go upstate New York and I talk to farmers you know and they're not all terror right I mean it's not black or white nothing's black or white and oftentimes I'll go on the farms and people will say like "Oh, well I bet they're not paying anyone a decent wage it's like actually they are they're paying them $15 an hour even more right like they take care of them in their own way but the first question I get is when are we getting laws that will allow our workers to come here and you know it's more about a, a following the rules and so um, which isn't to, you know, soften anything that this administration has done. And just to be clear, what this administration right. has done is horrendous uh, on, on every level. Um, but but I don't think it's always as black and white and ideological as we seem to think that, or as, as maybe, you know, it seems to play out in the media and as we might think it is.
0: So, but, yeah,
1: but, I, um, I definitely yeah. was not talking about where public opinion is, but where the sort of, um, you know, the, the policymakers are the, the, the Stevens-Miller of the world and how they're sort of battling things out behind the scenes um, uh, in, in sort of the policy world. It's very different from how normal people understand the system if they do at all, because it's, as you say, incredibly complex. And I think the complexity itself is a form of restriction. Um, mm-hmm. You know, public opinion has been, Really incredibly like positive, historic high opinion of how important immigration is to the United States that has coincided with some of the most, you know, draconian policy shifts, you know, that I can remember all taking place in the executive branch without any input from Congress or from the people.
0: So that's, I mean, I think that it's really interesting that you're both discussing a, a, a kind of a consensus, that that word may be a little strong, but, um across party lines over the last multiple presidencies trying to disentangle, as you said, a a quite cumbersome and broken system. But with public opinion, you said, Carly, trending towards positive view of immigrants.
1: Um, Yeah, I guess I would describe a kind of bipartisan anti-immigrant stance that has really dominated policymaking, you know, since the 1980s, there's been, you know, a few moments, uh, elements of IRCA, things like that, you know, that, that sort of trend against that. But in general, um, yeah, this, is, this has not been a, a partisan issue in the way that we think of partisan issues today. That might, I think that has changed in the last three years, um, you know, for the worse in many obvious ways. In other ways, it's opened up like liberatory possibilities that I really didn't think would be possible, you know, four or five years ago, seeing the way that um, the movement has pushed uh, the Democratic candidates, maybe not today, but six months ago mm-hmm. um, on, this, on, on immigration issues. And, and, and as Camille pointed out, you know, Trump has raised the visibility of this issue. Um, in ways that have been unbelievably harmful and dangerous, um, because he's, you know, activating white nationalism, but also in ways that I think have caused a lot of people to be less passive about uh, a policy arena that has long had the kind of violence that we now see daily in our Twitter feeds.
0: I wanted to, uh, to, to go in this direction, because I think it seems that whatever Trump believes, and it's very hard to discern what he may actually believe, he bought into an idea that Steve Bannon had and others that this was a political winner for him, even though it seemed that it might go against some sort of mainstream American opinion, it was incredibly energizing to a dedicated base of voters in key states that he would be able to flip from Democrats. And maybe that, maybe that indeed worked. But at the same time, I mean, Camille you've seen, and I guess we've seen in many cities in 2017, the the demonstrations at American airports. In my lifetime, I've never seen so much activism pushing against a president who was trying Mm -hmm. to criminalize or be blatantly racist in their sort of, or you use white nationalism as a term Carly and I don't think that's too far to go. Am I being too optimistic? I'm being too optimistic here. Am I being too optimistic here? What do you think, Camille? I mean, is this a moment of activism?
2: Yeah, I mean, so it's just to get a little personal for a second, you know, we, my organization, um, organized a lot of the rallies and protests after the election. Um, and then when the travel ban came, it was just at the end of just a gutting, exhausting week, right? It was the first week of the administration. We'd gotten the first two executive orders. We knew the Muslim ban was coming. we have been trying to figure out how to respond. We thought, you know, he went to Mar a Lago for the weekend. We were a little free on Friday until like 5 p.m. when we found out that it dropped. And then um, I remember talking to people in the government and asking what it meant. And they said, don't worry, this is, it takes time. It takes time to implement, right? You need guidance. And so when I woke up on Saturday morning, it, um, and saw that it had gone into effect when people were midair, a few of us went out to the airport and drove out there. And as an immigration lawyer, I'm thinking, what am I doing? You're not allowed a lawyer at the airport. But all I could think of is there's families there, right, who are waiting for loved ones who aren't making it through. They must need help. And so we started texting people, we started calling people, and it grew into the protests that you saw. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that we planned every single protest, right? We Mm -hmm. had something that Friday, we did this drama in downtown Manhattan. Rosa Parks was planned. She wasn't even the first person to sit at the front of the bus. Sure, sure. The airport protests were not planned. I assure you that driving to JFK that morning, it was neither my plan nor anybody else in that advocacy community in New York that had said to themselves, hey, if the travel ban goes into effect, we're all going out to JFK. It was like there was just this moment of national recognition. And that day just will always stand out in my mind because just like from standing in a parking lot and watching you know, people just standing there singing, this land is your land, this land is my land, to the moment where we walked out with the first one, Hamid Darwish, when he was free. And out of nowhere, everyone started shouting, welcome home. I don't even know how they recognized who he was, but they, it was just this incredible moment of reaction in the best, most American way possible. Um, and I don't know that we're there now. Um, I just think we're in a different place now. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I just think in one way, we're more exhausted. In one way, it's more personal, right? I mean, we're all living this. And in addition to the communities we're fighting for, we all have our, our, our own, you know, um, stresses and, and fears that are, that are being brought by all of this. We all have the, you know, people we know who are sick, possibly who, who are in the hospital, where work for our own, own health or one of our families. Um, but I also think in some ways we're smarter. And we're more organized and we're more educated about the issues. And so we're just responding in different ways. So I think the fact that, I mean, apart from the fact that you couldn't see us in the streets right now, even if we wanted to be, I I don't think that that's not happening means it's less. It's just different.
0: So we have uh, a little over 10 minutes left. I wanna encourage people to get questions in. I'm talking to Carly Goodman and Camille Mackler about COVID-19 and about immigration on COVID calls. You can get your questions into YouTube live or on Twitter. And um, Carly, I wanna, we do have to attend to history. Uh, It's come up at multiple times in this conversation, but I wonder, do we have moments in American history where we've seen a pandemic or any kind of disaster used so aggressively in this mode as a point of division, as a point of singling out immigrants or taking, taking action?
1: Yeah, I was trying to think about uh, what you were going to ask me and I've been, I have like no memory of anything that I've done, you know, more than a day (laughs) ago. Um, And people have been writing op-eds about this for us and, you know, and and clearly there's there's very good histories on sort of uh, the the treating um, immigrants as a vector of disease. um, Tons of that, uh, of the way people are sort of screened and dehumanized at points of entry in, in our history. Um, you know, maybe not pandemic, but I was thinking of sort of wartime as uh, an opportunity that um that forces within within government have sort of seized as a chance to to sort of try to shut things down. Um, and I do think that they are almost always served by other, <laughs> they're always almost um seizing the opportunity to serve existing goals. Um, So when I think about uh, sort of the unwillingness of the United States to settle the St. Louis, you know, in the 1930s, those there were like forces in the State Department that were, that were keeping those quotas un, unreached. Um, you know, 9-11 in our in our recent history, in our in my living history, as a time of like taking an opportunity to increase surveillance, to increase detention, to sort of normalize that those kinds of um, technologies that are, you know, have have only increased in their use in our in the immigration enforcement system. Um, what I was thinking about for you, Scott, was the success that the restrictionist movement has had in framing immigration itself as the crisis, um, and so seizing on images in 1980 of the Mariel lift of people arriving, um, you know, in this uncontrolled. Manner that maybe the public couldn't really necessarily parse and conveying those images as, as a crisis that needs to be addressed with greater immigration restrictions. And we've seen that with, uh, with the, uh, the Haitian refugees in the early 90s and those images of people on boats. Um, and this idea that immigration itself is a crisis has also been the sort of the drumbeat of the immigration reforms that we've seen since the nineties and sort of the failure of, of, of immigration, um, since the eighties, uh, failure of the legislation has been, um, you know, devastating, but all of the enforcement priorities have marched on, um, secure in this idea that, uh, that, you know, immigration has to be brought under control and that logic seems to, to be enough to undergird a lot of policies that are, that I think would have been very shocking to Americans in the 1980s. This idea of a mass deportation force moving through our communities and through our neighborhoods, a detention system on the scale that we have, these ICE deportation flights. These are, these were things that when I go back and I read the debates in the 1980s, people are very wary of.
0: When you see language like Wuhan virus then, I mean, that to you dredges up tools and and rhetorics that must have also accompanied these these moments you're talking about where the the immigration and immigration wave or particular moment itself is framed as a as a kind of a disaster but if you it's layer, been- an invasion nope. or a recapture or
1: um, a flood. The, the water metaphors in coverage of immigration are always quite triggering to me because it's always a flood, a wave, a sort of disembodied, inhuman mass of people that is a threat to you, the reader. Um, I, I mean, I don't. I, well, I actually want to let Camille talk, but uh, but the Spanish flu thing is is sort of uh, a great parallel to the Wuhan flu, which right. is that it was not Spanish. <laughs> Yeah. It was cast as Spanish, right? Because Spain was a neutral party in World War One, and they were the only ones talking about the pandemic outbreak and trying to do the responsible thing. And history has blamed them for more than a hundred years. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it, it was uh, it was convenient at first to sort of explain inaction because. Uh, the argument was that uh, this was a matter of, you know, the climate of Spain or the sworthiness of the Spanish people that made them susceptible to the uh, to the influenza. And so those those ideas and framing it as this, this foreign thing that isn't of us and isn't about us um, just prevented that much more, you know, early assertive action that might have saved lives.
0: I guess people must have thought that, you know, that that sort of obvious racialization um, of the pandemic and th- that those kind of tricks. And I think it, your idea, interestingly too, that war is a moment in which these similar kinds of moves are made against, I mean, I'm thinking of Japanese detention. Um, and that somehow we were smarter than that or we'd learned from history or, and I guess I just have to ask you you know, your sense of this because you must, you must get asked this all the time. I mean, why have we not learned? from those moments there's something structural about our our psychology in these moments that we grow fearful and therefore we we just allow these kind of actions or have historians not been uh, good enough communicators but why are we when i saw wuhan virus i i had that same thought of spanish flu it wasn't a spanish flu it was an american flu but what does it even matter it's not a nationalist flu it's a virus that's circulating around a world that's at war but nationalizing it in some some way shouldn't we have known better than that
1: very powerful forces are at work to make sure that we don't (laughs) right it's um i you know i i can't say oh the public doesn't understand when you know we a, a lot of our politics is about exacerbating and fanning these flames and a lot is poured into uh into sort of tapping into the the fault lines in our society um i think Yes, we need to write more op-eds, pitch me op-eds. <laughs> yes, historians are important, pay us salaries as professors so we can do important research, but we also just need uh, a society where we, you know, take care of each other and sort of recognize that that's the top priority, that, we, that we're all in this together and we have to take care of each other. Um, and so, and you know, a basic social safety net that includes all of us, um, yeah.
0: Camille, you were—that was a very good pep talk for historians. Carly, I appreciate that. And I, but you know, Camille, you were touching on this earlier, talking about the the airport um, protests and actions. But in this particular moment, um, how can people be allies in the work you're doing? How do we make solidarity in this particular moment? Most people don't have law degrees; they don't have the experience that you do. Many people are distant, or they feel that somehow they're distant from immigrant immigrant communities. How do we connect with this struggle?
2: I think, um, well, first of all, be cognizant, right? I mean, when you get food delivered to your door, maybe tip a little extra. Um, understand the the challenges that they're facing now. If um, if you're, you know, if your child is is being remote learning or anything like that, and you know that there's another child who's maybe struggling a little bit um, in your community, maybe reach out and you know. Um, I think just acts of welcome and acts of kindness and just of neighborly compassion so far. Um, I think, you know, I, I know we always say call your elected officials, call your elected officials, get them to include relief for immigrants in, um, in the upcoming relief package that's being negotiated right now, COVID-4 or whatever they're calling it. Um, you know that and do that at the local level too. Um, and get involved. I mean, get involved with the local advocacy group, sign up for the lister, find out what's happening. You know, a lot of times we put action alerts on our on our social media or whatnot. I mean, I think the more we can talk about it and the more we can sort of educate each other as to what the issues really are, the more I think a lot of what happens with this immigration is the fear, right? there's there's the obvious barriers, like there's the the cultural barriers and the language barriers, and there's just things that seem so daunting, but once you you know once you get over it, I mean, Volunteer to be to teach someone to learn English so that they can become a U.S. citizen. Just be a conversation partner, you know, um, things like that. Um, just go so far, and I think what we need to do is we just need to have a real conversation, a real honest conversation about immigration in in this country. And that's not happening. And the Trump administration and people who think that way are able to exploit the lack of knowledge and the lack of understanding of the core issues to sow this fear and to really promote it. Um, when you know, when you get to know somebody as a human being you realize they're not that scary at all.
0: I just want to get one last question in to, to both of you and that's to where can else can we look to see countries that maybe are doing better than the United States at this right now. Countries where the immigration policies are maybe better but also in this particular moment and under the stress of the pandemic where countries are not you're not seeing the kinds of actions that that we're seeing in the United States that are stigmatizing and damaging immigrant communities. Early
1: on, I saw a story about Portugal um, where everyone's status was sort of regularized temporarily or for the purposes of um, of whatever their their relief package was but i have I don't have on the ground you know corroboration of of how great that's going. It just sounded pretty great when i when I saw it. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of the problems we're, we're having here are, are problems elsewhere in some places, you know, you know, quite, quite violent. Um, you know, aggressive responses to, to migrant communities um, and like the forces that I was talking about of, uh, of sort of white power and white nationalism are also transnational forces. Um, that have been, you know, activating the far right in so many of these European countries. I I don't know that we have a lot of great examples.
0: Yeah. Camille, do you have any 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 place in mind? You're shaking your head.
2: Not really. I mean I think Europe just generally, because of their healthcare system and stuff, has probably been more welcoming by default. But I don't think I can't think of any place that's been overtly Except, for, I guess, for the nation state of California, which has made a lot of investments in, uh, uh, in immigrant
0: communities, but. <laughs> so, the, I guess I said that was the last question, but I actually have one more little question, which is, um, how do you think this pandemic is gonna change the way we do this kind of work and research?
2: I think if, it's, it's gonna change how we connect. And I think that's for the better. We're communicating more in a way, right? Our our own internal borders have been brought down. And I think okay. that that's probably a good thing.
0: That's interesting. Carly, from the perspective <laughs> of history, I mean, we're supposed to be working with old sources, but there's a lot of new sources being generated every day. I mean, have you had a chance to think about this yet?
1: Um, I mean, I think it really depends how this recovery goes. Like if we can get the testing, if we can, you know, create a society with more robust support than we had before. There's a lot of hunger for healthcare, right? There's a lot of recognition that our old fragilities have left us, you know, especially vulnerable to this and that has had real human costs. So if we can sort of build on all of the movements that have been trying to bring these issues to people's, you know, attention and all of the people who are newly aware of them, uh, if we can sort of change our... (laughs) You know the very structure of our society, so just a simple in my mind, simple two step project change the structure of society um, like I think that 's going to to really shape the answer to your question because you know, there's a very real likelihood that all of the history departments with the exception of a few Ivy League ones will cease to exist in the next several years, right? We're going to see a transformation of, of higher ed as we know it, that could be quite devastating um, because we haven't necessarily invested in the things that we value and that are important. I mean, we talked about that at the beginning of this call. It's also true um, in all areas of American life, the things that make life joyful and worth living, I think are worth, rebuilding um, and the things that the, the sort of the structures that can allow uh, us to, to bring our individual gifts and our treasures to bear on these, like on the tough questions and challenges that, that are, are before us. You mentioned earlier the idea of, well, what if a foreign-born person who came and got their PhD here in the United States is kicked out because they eliminate OPT and there's no visas for them, and then they don't have a chance to work in that lab and develop the the vaccine for this, this very pandemic. I think there's so many, um, people whose treasures we haven't cultivated, um, and we haven't honored. And so letting people sort of have the opportunity to live their best life. That seems to be, that's like a very old fashioned idea about what the American dream is, but I think it might be the best of it.
0: I want to remind people that you've been listening to COVID Calls and tomorrow I'm going to be talking to Don Kettle at five o'clock about American federalism. So please rejoin me for that. And I really want to thank uh, Camille Mackler and Carly Goodman uh, for this really rich conversation. And obviously, we really have much more to say about this. So I hope I can get a chance to speak to you both again. Thanks for coming on COVID Calls. Thank
1: you. Thank you.
0: Stay healthy, everyone. And we'll talk to you tomorrow at five o'clock. Thank you.